cool if you like. Cause out of cop, spit in his face. Scope on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think you're tough. It's all that is a small town. See how far you make it down the road. Around here we take care of. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm here with the star of our show, the Hall of Fame pitcher Jim Cott, and this is Cott's Corner, episode 353 on our network. Before we bring Jim on, I just want to quickly thank two groups of people. First, our audience, closing in on 60,000 subscribers now, 74 countries. We appreciate your support. You can get us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, or now the very powerful podcast network of iHeartRadio. Make sure you give this episode five stars, write some nice comments, because we do battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. And to our newest friend on the sponsor, uh, in the sponsorship world, we finally took one on here, Blackout Coffee. I'm drinking my Blackout Espresso right now. It's keeping me hopped up for our triple header today. But uh, make sure you go onto their website. They've offered a deal for our listeners, 20% off at checkout on your first purchase. You can buy as much coffee as you want. Capital D, capital A, capital V, capital I, capital D. David with the number 20 after it, and you'll get a 20% discount, and then you'll get 15% in perpetuity. I love friends that love coffee. They love baseball, and they give us discounts. So uh, with that, Jim, welcome back to your show. Well, thanks, Dave. That uh, coffee and baseball go together. You know, I can't tell you how we sat around the clubhouse before a game uh, drinking coffee, (laughs) and it was just, of course, it's part of my heritage. Dutch people are known for... They drink coffee morning, noon, and night. I got to find a place down here in South Georgia that has blackout coffee. I've seen uh, Black Rifle coffee. I've seen several other uh, brands that are are not the you know so called big name brands. But I have to find out where to get blackout. I'll have to let them know. It's uh, I'll ask them. Their, their headquarters are in Florida. The CEO lives in Tennessee, and his slogan made me laugh when he said it's, his slogan is "Be awake, not woke," and it took get a second to register and it's got it's got so many layers to it with such a simple a simple yeah. phrase but uh I like that that caught my eye yep made me laugh out loud and i, I said okay we got a partner up if you can make me laugh i'm i'm yours but uh we, we've got a, a good amount to cover today you had, you had to trip to the the gold glove awards but uh before we hit that you you brought up an interesting article about the resurgence of cody bellinger i don't think you neither you nor i were surprised about the talent that he is, but there's a certain faction of the baseball world that's kind of in shock about his resurgence. Yeah, I, I think in reading it on the MLB.com uh, page, which I, I follow regularly, uh, you know, they don't understand how he could, they being the analytics, the StatCast crowd, uh, how he could have the year he had with such an ordinary barrel rate and exit velocity. Uh, you know, it's like they, they compared in their Jose Altuve, who has made millions of dollars by hitting a soft fly ball down the, down the line in Minute Maid Park. But uh, he's just taken advantage of the, of the dimensions there. But what Bellinger has obviously done is with two strikes, he's shortened up and he may not be hitting it absolutely square, but he's getting enough of it to either go in the gap for extra base hits or might even go over the wall. I mean, you don't have to have maximum exit velocity or barrel it up to hit it out of these ballparks these days because the parks are made smaller 
and the athletes are bigger and stronger. So uh, I just found that interesting that they're sort of uh, questioning how he could have a year like that without maximum uh, maximum uh, velocity and barrel rate. And again, that's a that's sort of a an indication of how digging too deep into the science, uh, you know, it, it's, it's kind of wrong headed. It's, uh, it's probably costing teams a lot of money, or in this case, I think it caused the Dodgers to turn their back on Bellinger and think, well, you know, he's just not the player that he was. And uh, I think, you know, you go back to the Tony Gwynn's and Rod Carew's, uh, their exit velocity wasn't, wasn't all that great, but, they found grass with their line drives and <laughs> things like that, that, uh, that add up. So, uh, again, the, uh, the propeller heads, they, they want everything to be maximum the way they read it. And if it isn't, then, well, you can't be that good. And, uh, so I, I was, I was, uh, you know, it, uh, it was, I guess, enjoyable to read that and see where Cody Bellinger, uh, sort of defied the analytics. Yeah. You would think a bell would go off in their head because whether they're heavy into science or heavy into math, you, you and I are both living, breathing, thinking human beings. And when something doesn't make sense in our world, we investigate. We look, hmm. what, what could be wrong with our hypothesis? It's ironic that the science crowd uh, that's been brought up in that with that methodology isn't, isn't kind of going back to that question of what doesn't make sense. Let me look into it. Yeah, I, I think what we what we run into is a kind of, we being the I guess you'd say the traditional uh, baseball people that like to use our eyes and our instincts and our gut and our brain uh, that there is no there's no dialogue there's no give and take because I, I think I speak for the majority of former players in that the analytics crowd it's one of the reasons that we are not welcome in clubhouses that uh, uh in my particular case being a you know long probably the longest tenured minnesota twin around i have no conversation with the pitching coach because they don't want to hear our side of it all they want to do is tell us how their side is right and that we're wrong and that's what's really caused the battle to where I think teams are missing out on being able to to meld the two where you use the traditional eyes and ears and brain and experience and meld it with uh, some analytic advice that may be helpful. And they don't see it that way. And that's that's what's caused a big divide. Yeah. You know, I, I did a consulting project with the military. This was probably a decade ago as a as a college coach. I was employing numbers to just check myself as a as a 28-year-old Division I head coach. So I had some ego. So I needed something or someone to check me. And I use I used numbers privately to start having conversations with myself. And it actually forced me to look at my my brain and the way I approach the game and that there's an, there's an analysis side to it, but there's also an oper- operative side to it. And if, if, if the analysis side to it, which is strictly numbers and science, doesn't rely on or seek counsel from the operative side, um, there, there's going to be a friction, there's going to be a rub, and there's going to be a stunting of growth in whatever industry it is. And military goes to that. Analysis and operatives, uh, operatives being people that, like you said, they've been in the battles, they they have the experiences, they've got the eyes, they've got the gut, 
they can get out there and execute, um, that is invaluable. And once the number size, the analysis size realizes that, this game has potential to explode to greater heights that we've never thought before. But right now, it's as I think you would agree, the very fact that they're dumbfounded over a guy like Cody Bellinger, who's a legacy in, in Major League Baseball, who's a tremendous athlete, um, who's had success already on the big league level, and that, that he, he can't have success again, not doing it their way is just very obtuse. Sorry for the long soliloquy there. Yeah, I, I think they're comparing a few guys that uh, that had – you know, big time slugging numbers, but yet a very average barrel rate um, and exit velocity. And again, they put they put all that into a, a pot, kind of an average uh, that you have to have above that average of the exit velocity and, and uh, barrel rate to be successful. And, uh, and you don't, uh, you know, I guess you could compare it to a pitcher. Uh, they might be amazed that a, a pitcher could actually have success like a Ranger Suarez without throwing uh, 94 miles an hour. And where this trickles down into the things that you and I are really interested in is in amateur ball, if they're scouting young players with, uh, with that in mind, exit velocity and barrel rate, uh, you know, go see uh, Trouble with the Curve with Clint Eastwood, and then you'll realize how uh, you know, they're going down the wrong rabbit hole there with that because that does not equate to being a, a successful baseball player. Yeah, well, you're, they're limiting their prospects that way and limiting development. We had a guy on uh, this morning, uh, our, our leadoff today to a triple header, with uh, we talked about Tom Flash Gordon. There's nothing about the, his stature that would say powerhouse reliever, powerhouse starter, um, five, nine uh, maybe. And yeah. uh, I mean, t- nowadays he wouldn't, he'd be overlooked in terms of that, or they try to convert him to a second baseman. Yeah. He, he you know, I remember flash when he was a, a starter with Kansas city, when he came up with that outstanding curveball. you know, he had success as a starter and then became one of the, one of the premier relievers for a period of time as well, mainly with, uh, with that outstanding curveball, but also he, he had a live fastball to go with it. I don't know what they clocked it at, but uh, as they would always ask me when they say, "Well, how hard do you? How hard did you throw?" and I'd always say, "Well, hard enough, I guess." Yeah. Because hard enough is just uh, getting hitters out, <laughs> and uh, if you're doing that with 88 or 94 or whatever, the bottom line is to get the hitter out. Yeah, and he spoke about Jamie Moyer as well, and we we all know Jamie Moyer. Uh, he pitched. Well, late was he? Did he pitch till he was fifty? I think he started a game. Uh, I don't know if for sure if he won it, but he may have even won a game at fifty. Yeah, and he's he's kind of the gold standard. I think we we look at when we start talking about uh, pitchers that were less than power pitchers for their entire career and yet piled up. Uh, I, I think he might be in the 250, 260 win total career. Yeah. Yeah, he's got quite a few, and yeah. brought up a great point, uh, Flash Corden, that he asked Jamie, he's like, well, you know, could you throw 90? He's like, sure, I could throw 90, but it takes it takes a lot. Uh, it, it takes intelligence. It takes understanding the nuances of the hitter's lean, where they're standing in the box, things that are doing with their hands. And he's like, if, if throwing 84 got him off balance or made his eyes do something different, uh, then 
uh, that's what I threw. And he goes, so that's, that's why I threw that way for that long. He goes, yeah, but if I needed to, if I had to rev it back up and throw 90, I could, but I wouldn't have been able to throw 25, 26 years and wouldn't have had the success I've had. Um, and to me, that's, it's ironic, I guess, that you would think the science and the math people would cling to the intelligence of a statement like that. Yeah, you would think so, but they don't. I mean, it goes back to the simplest uh, uh, analogy when, when Warren Spahn, the great left-hander, was said pitch, uh, hitting is timing and pitching is destroying timing or upsetting timing. And that's what Jamie Moyer did. And I think that's what all of us that are less than powerful like a Nolan Ryan, Nolan stood out because I don't think anybody was a pure power pitcher up into their mid forties that Nolan was. So he, he's an exception. The rest of us mortals did it with, uh, with trying to upset hitters timing. And our game has gone away from that, which maybe would lead us into a, another subject here. The game has gone away from destroying timing into, uh, into just a power laden game and in starting pitchers cases, I was looking at some of the pitchers that turned down qualifying offers, which, the qualifying offer for for listeners that aren't familiar with it, it's it's there's a there's a formula used uh, that comes up with the with the average salary that uh, you have to offer a free agent in order to keep him, and it's gone from I think years ago it was fourteen or fifteen million. It's now at twenty million, and all of them have turned that down, like Sonny Gray from the Twins being one, uh, and I think Aaron Nola because they're going to get more. So if these starters, now they're not, when I mentioned Nola and Sonny Gray, they're not pure power pitchers. They're going to get well over $20 million. And yet the way they've constructed pitching organizations, they only want their starter to go through the batting order twice. You know, well, well, they'll probably keep Sonny Gray from winning the Cy Young award. And it's probably going to go to Garrett Cole. And he, he deserves it. But uh, Sonny had so many no decisions because he'd go through the batting order twice. He'd take him out of the game. So uh, my question to ownership is, why are you paying a guy $30 million, a premier starter, and yet you're only going to use him for half a game? I mean, you're not getting your money's worth. So, you know, how, how, do, they, how do they justify that? Uh, More logic, right? These people have made billions of dollars in their lives and, they uh, it's to apply a simple apples to apples formula like you're suggesting. I, I I'm I'm dumbfounded myself. Yeah, I was I was thinking, you know, in my own career, I was just fantasizing. Wow, wouldn't it be cool to be a free agent starter today? Because you only have to pitch 200 innings, if that, and you only have to pitch five innings, and you're only pitching every five days or six days. What a great way to make a living. You know, you could sit there and be a spectator for, you know, for three quarters of the time yeah. and you're going to make uh, tons of money. And then and the owners are, then they also have to pay the, the setup relievers and the short reliever uh, to come up with a win, you know, so they've been, they're investing a lot of money uh, in, in a starter a setup man and a closer to win a game because they've dumbed down these pitchers like Sonny Gray and Nola. They've dumbed them down so much to only pitch a half a game. They're not getting their full value. Yeah. The, the old, 
third time around the order philosophy has certainly made getting a win so I think more complicated just for the sake of being complicated when when you look at it if you take your career now I'll do the math after I may give it to Tanner as a homeschool session today but if you take your total number of innings you pitched over your career let's say you divide it by like a league average like 130 innings you may have thrown another 10 years <laughs> yeah yeah, that's true. See, I had 46, I think almost 4,600 innings. Uh, so, yeah, if you only had to pitch 150 innings a year, well, maybe. That's you know, a lot nowadays. You could pitch for, you could pitch for 40 years. <laughs> I, you'd still be pitching, maybe. Yeah, but it, it, it is kind of sad that they aren't getting uh, the value out of those starters that they uh, that they could. And, and you touched on it earlier about the, you know, using our brain and the, and the logic and the experience of pitching, which any starting pitcher will tell you uh, that pitched decades ago, that the key to getting through the batting order a third time is you vary your pattern. You don't empty the vault the first time through the batting order. You kind of look at the game like, as Warren Spahn said to me now, Kid, when it's tied in the seventh, it's just starting because you'll have to learn to face to pitch Mickey Mantle differently in that fourth at bat than you did in the first at bat, and that's just a, a mentality. The physical talent uh, is there; they just uh, they don't want to tap into it. I, I would think that would be the ultimate cerebral challenge for a science or a math guy to say, "I want to figure out from a pitching standpoint how we can outsmart that hitter, that that uh, Adonis athlete that." picked me last in gym class or that picked them last in gym class, I should say. Um, yeah, I would think that would be the ultimate intellectual challenge. Let me, let me see if we can get them through the third time. Um, and then from that, the hit of the same standpoint, like what can I learn in the first two at bats to, you know, have more success the third time around. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Now, do you see the value? And when I saw this, I should say this, I saw this happen in the NFL with running backs. I saw, the market value of running backs get diminished as I would say owners, GMs, head coaches abuse those running backs. And I see the abuse in the pitchers, not in the innings, but with this whole max velocity mentality. To me, that's abuse and there's no way they can keep it up. Uh, you know, they, they can't throw 200 innings doing it that way. It's, it would be destructive to their bodies. And we see, we're seeing it is they're, they're getting hurt. They're not able to, to take their, take the post every five days. And, I mean, do you see the market value of pitchers eventually hitting that peak and sliding down because? Well, you'd, you'd think it would have already happened because, there again, uh, you know, you, you have uh, rotations for the whole year. I think the Red Sox starting rotation averaged uh, like four and a fraction innings. So you already have uh, the fact that they're, they're cutting down on the use of the starters. Uh, part of that is uh, maybe – injuries because they haven't been trained properly, but we're already seeing that have an effect on the use of the pitchers. But the the unusual part, the surprising part, is that they're clamoring for betting, better starting pitching and they want to pay them more. So they want to pay them more and use them less. Yeah. So where, where is the logic in that? I mean, uh, I can see as a, say, as an owner or a, a pitching coach for a team, and I got a chance to get Sonny Gray on my rotation, I say, wow, that's great. And I can teach him, I can train him to pitch seven to eight innings because he's very capable of doing that. Yeah. But, but we won't we won't get that chance. They'll continue to use the myth that uh, 
pitch counts and innings restrictions uh, saves their arm. And the statistics say that they're wrong because there are more surgeries than than ever before. I think we pointed it out on our last podcast. Uh, Nathan Avaldi has made millions of dollars by being a very successful postseason pitcher. But he, I don't, I think maybe he hit 200 innings once and he's had two Tommy John surgeries. Yep. So during the regular season, they're really not getting as much value from him as they could. Uh, and then to his credit, he's had such a phenomenal postseason that he's parlayed that into, I, I would say, his career earnings now are going to go over $100 million. So good for him. He's. Oof. He's working the system not in an illegal way, but uh, he's he's taking advantage of it. Certainly is. And there's a number of guys in the free agent market now, if they do want to start the trend back to having – and I look at pitchers, they almost treat starting pitchers like utility players now, where they're, they've got that mentality where four and a third, uh, similar to the position player, he can play second, short, left, wherever it may be, just stick them out there. And that's unfortunate because to me, as with your meetings with the, you know, with the commissioner's office – uh, the people come to watch this, the pitcher. They, they want to see that that head-to-head clash with the two titans out there, going seven, eight, nine innings. Yeah, we don't we don't see that anymore. I mean, I even go back to when my dad, who was such an avid baseball fan, and in the late '40s, he drove from our little hometown in Michigan to Cleveland. Uh, that was when the Indians, right after World War II, they they drew 2.7 million people, which was unheard of, but. In the old Cleveland Municipal Stadium, it was Yankees and Indians in a doubleheader. And he went there to see, I think it was Rashi, Vic Rashi and, and Allie Reynolds against, say, Bob Feller and Bob Lemon. These may not have been the exact starters, but he went there knowing that these guys were going to be going at it in the ninth inning. and They were going to be pitching complete games. So that was the attraction was not necessarily just to go to see Cleveland and the Yankees. It was to see those star starting pitchers and even the commissioner and uh, MLB uh, Morgan Sword, the uh, the head of MLB uh, ops, they're trying to figure out a way going back to our going down to our youth baseball uh, to, to try to start developing pitchers that are more durable and can become the Bob Gibsons and the Tom Seavers and the Sandy Koufaxes that we don't have anymore. The closest thing to it is Justin Verlander. I mean, he has gone from a power pitcher to a power pitcher with smarts. And, yeah. uh, and and he is certainly, I think he would be capable, if necessary, of pitching nine innings. They don't play the game that way anymore, but he certainly would be capable of doing that. So he he would be at the top of the class. But they there's, uh, and Madison Bumgarner a little before him, but there there are others there that, if trained properly, could do the same thing. Yeah, it's not. I mean, people have done it in the past and I kind of laughed at the, the human being has survived much greater endurance tests than pitching eight or nine innings. It's been done before. It can be trained. And I kind of we were talking uh, in our house the other day about this topic as we were prepping for the show. I had Tanner, my special research assistant, helping me out. And we were talking about I said, what is what would have to happen for pitchers to get the mentality of throwing longer innings at your level. He's, he's 14 now. Um, and he said, we maybe we don't play four games in 48 hours. 
because that's what these tournaments do to these kids, these grassroots tournaments. They'll play four or five games in a less than 48 hours. And that's not good for anybody. Um, you know, if they spaced it out like they do in Major League Baseball, where, hey, you play, maybe you play just on the weekends, one day a week or one game during the week to space it out and train these kids mentally, physically. But my, and Tanner laughed. He's like, it can be done. And he laughed. He goes, you're, you're 50. You run ultra marathons. That's 19 hours of running straight. Yeah. And he's like, then he goes, certainly these guys that are, you know, kind of made me feel bad for a second. These guys that are bigger, stronger, faster than you, they could throw nine innings with a rest in between. And then I said, yeah, he's out of the mouth of babe sometimes. He's, he's exactly right. It's, it's only a matter of, of training. And, uh, you know, if I could start a bumper sticker campaign, but it wouldn't be very popular, it would be eliminate travel ball. Yeah. You know, because uh, I know it's it's fun for the kids, but it's expensive for the parents. And uh, that's where the abuse of the pitcher's arms begins, is down there where, as your son Tanner said, where you're, you're playing X amount of games uh, in a short period of time. And uh, you, you talk to your top orthopedic surgeons like James Andrews, who kind of succeeded... Uh, uh, Frank Joe with the with the original Tommy John surgeries is they all stress playing a number of different sports and splitting up the seasons, and yet it's it's counter to what we're doing with our youth is you've got coaches saying, well if you want to be on my team it's none of this part time stuff you got to devote your whole year to that, so therein lies the problem with coaches and parents and we have to get down to the grassroots. And we continue to hammer about that uh, on that here at the podcast is to uh, to get down to the grassroots and and have our our youth league coaches just be organizers and encouragers and help kids enjoy the game and have a good time doing it and not put too much pressure on competing. I mean, if you play a game, you want to win, but at that level, you're not doing it for a living. I, I was thinking back to the days that I, I played American Legion ball, which was my first organized baseball, and even before that, fast pitch softball. I never really felt devastated if we lost a game uh, at that age because I thought it was cool to get out there and play and perform and compete and do the best you could. But it wasn't like... I was afraid the coach was going to berate me or my parents were going to feel disappointed that I didn't do well. You know, I was just out there for the enjoyment of the game. Then when the, when the serious com competition starts, it's maybe when you're in high school and college and, you know, high school, you're trying to get a college scholarship. So you want to do well, but before that we have to, we have to make it enjoyable for kids. And maybe as a result of that, uh, less competitive and we can maybe avoid some of the injuries that we're seeing. Yeah. And, you know, for our audience too, the, the kids are going to be, anytime you're keeping score, kids are going to be naturally competitive on this stuff, but where it reaches that, that level of unhealthiness is because of the adults. You get the, yeah. you, you get the dugout filled with six adults, uh, you know, all with an agenda. You have the crowd, you know, with the adults all with an agenda. And if they just let these kids play, they would find a healthy competitiveness to be competitive during the game. Try, you know, try to do their best, uh, try, try to win the right way. 
but when the game's over, you're right. And I, and I remind my wife of this too. We're both, you know, we're both former college athletes, me being a former professional athlete. And these kids, as competitive as we think they are, they forget about that stuff as soon as it's over, if we let them. If yeah. We, but if we're ragging that kid the whole way to the car and then sitting in the car trying to analyze every at bat, it's not going to be fun for them anymore. They're not going to enjoy it. They're not going to want to do it. And the, the, I don't know how much these parents think they're helping those kids out. Most of them never played. They don't know what they're talking about. And uh, they're just harassing the shit, excuse my language, harassing the shit out of their kid to the point where they're going to make the game miserable. You know where I, I, I first laughed when I saw this happen, when I was over in New Zealand and uh, softball, fast pitch softball is, is their biggest sport for youth. And it's gradually they're picking up more baseball players. But uh, some of the kids that I worked with played both softball and baseball. So I went to a softball game and one of the kids on, say, Team A hit a home run. And as he was coming on approaching third base, the third baseman on Team B gave him a high five, you know, like he like nice going. I mean, it wasn't a matter of life or death. They were just out there having fun. And uh, I know there's that fine line where, you know, if you play, you want to you want to try to win, do your best. But uh, particularly in our pre high school youth, uh, we, we need to make it more enjoyable. Uh, we've talked in baseball about with pitchers uh, using a, a smaller ball. Talked at the uh, talked at the Gold Glove Awards dinner with Andrew Jones. I sat next to Andrew Jones, the great center fielder from the Atlanta Braves, who uh, grew up in Curacao, which is a Dutch. Uh, you know, it's it's where the Dutch team gets a lot of their players, and the Dutch uh, way of teaching, starting with their youth, is to use a, a much smaller baseball, uh, which is a lot easier for the kids to handle and make it more enjoyable for them. A little smaller diamond. And I don't know if we're ever going to get to that point in, in our country, but it would be nice if we did. Do, do any companies make those smaller balls that you know of? Well, they, I brought three back from the Netherlands. Um, I don't know exactly where they're getting them, but I mentioned it to Steve Keener, who now is the president of the of Little League. But certainly certainly they're available, and with, with all of the uh, – with all of the participation in Little League Baseball at a young age, I'm sure you get Rawlings or some company to uh, to make them in, in quantity if, if we just started, you know, introducing that to where uh, the kids would use it. And, and I think it would be a, a better teaching tool for us that are trying to, say, uh, show young young boys how to grip the baseball. If they have a regulation baseball, it's impossible for them to grip it like a major league pitcher would grip it. Yeah. It's interesting. They haven't done that because they have made the bats lighter. For, for kids. I, I, I know it's, but uh, boy, I, I'd see it's been at least 10 years since I've, uh, since I've gone to the Netherlands and uh, there've been no change over here in our country. I'm going to uh, actually do some research between our, in between shows and, and see if I can find a manufacturer that does it. If not, we may have found our next business here because I, I think it's great to use, even if it's informal with parents that really want to teach their kids the right way. Or, I mean, there's more pitching coaches out there, or throwing coaches, than there are Starbucks right now. And, yeah. you know, uh, I think to, to, to get that in their systems, and re- it would help reduce injuries. It would better mechanics, uh, more success, and kids wanting to play longer. I, I agree because we'll, 
you know, you, you think about, we do the same thing in basketball. We have these young kids hoisting up shots at 10 foot rims and eventually they're going to compensate. They'll figure out how to get that ball to the rim, but it's going to be done improperly. And people laugh because my kids, uh, all four of them are really good shooters. And uh, we started on a six foot rim and they weren't allowed to go up six feet, six inches until they were perfect doing it that way. And then we, we grow and they still, when they're having trouble with their shooting, they feel off. They'll lower the rim down eight feet and they'll just get back to basics. Um, This is probably nitpicking a little bit, but actually if you gave a regulation baseball to a seven or an eight year old, as he begins to try to grip that ball, he's going to tighten his fingers and his thumb. When you do that, you can feel that UCL, that ulnar collateral ligament in your elbow. You can put your finger on it and you can feel it begin to contract. So actually by having a smaller ball, you're going to allow kids to grip it with a more, uh, like I had coaches tell me, grip it like an egg with a soft thumb. And you get more spin, you get more wrist action. And when you're putting a regulation ball in the hand of a, a seven or an eight-year-old, all he's going to do is, is, is grip it much too hard with his fingers and his thumb. And that's certainly not good for his arm, even at that age. Yeah. And I've got a baseball with me now. I'm doing it. I know we're a, not a visual show or audio, but explain to the audience the best you can. Cause as I'm gripping it, like a young kid would do a lot of pressure on my thumb because my thumb is going to be my grabber, but that should not be the case when you're holding a baseball, get ready to throw it right. What should be the position of the thumb? Yeah. I mean, no matter, no matter where it is now with, with, with the split finger guys, you know, that, that split their fingers. When you do that, you can really feel the, the tension it, it plays on their, on their elbow, which, which might be why, you know, you don't, I think Jack Morris had that pitch for his entire career, but that's, that's a pitch that can take its toll. But, but uh, if anything, you want to grip the ball where the, where the fingers curl around the baseball and the pressure really is on the fingertips. Uh, I, you know, I can feel that I still have pretty strong fingertips on my, my left hand. And that's where you get the grip. And then the thumb just kind of lays on the ball, relaxing. If you did an exercise at home and you gripped a baseball and you, you squeezed it with your thumb till your thumb almost got white, and then you move your wrist and then compare that to curl your fingers around the ball and lay your thumb on it ever so lightly and move your wrist. Well, your wrist moves, I don't know how many times faster when you do it with a relaxed thumb and that's where you get your spin and that's where you get your movement. Makes sense. Puts more emphasis on that last digits of the fingertips and the thumb should be underneath the baseball, correct? Well, I, think you, I think you find that for each individual. I mean, uh, depends what their arm angle is. Uh, uh, some of the pitchers like Mariano Rivera was unusual as catfish hunter. They actually tucked their thumb to where the, the, uh, the last pad of that thumb wasn't even touching you know, gripping the ball. I couldn't, I couldn't throw it like that. I'd throw it right up in the air in the stand somewhere. But uh, I think you have to find where your, where your thumb lays on the ball comfortably for you. That may not be the same for every pitcher. That's a good point. Cause my son Tanner, he, his goes like you're talking, he tucks it right under. Yeah. Uh, and he gets like, almost like basketball backspin on the ball. His ball is very straight. He's a catcher. So he wants it to be straight. Um, gets nice rotation on it. It's easy to receive. And, um, he's comfortable doing that. Now with me as a former second baseman, um, mine's a little bit more on the side. I have a very hard time 
it's uncomfortable for me to tuck it underneath like he does. And then my son, uh, David Blue, he, he's he's kind of uh, in between the two of us with that. He's got longer fingers than both of us. But yeah, so it's interesting you say that. we've I've never forced him to do it a certain way. I've kind of offered him different ways to do it, have him figure it out on their own. It's as long as it gets there and it's straight and your arm's healthy, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah, that, that kind of... That kind of leads us into point three here that I want to I want to touch on a little bit is the uh, the Gold Glove winners is they've you know they're now seventy five percent of the managers and six coaches get to vote. Uh, you can't vote for anybody on your own team and you can't vote for anybody in the other league. Uh, there's some certain reason. One of them that really hurts a lot of short relievers is uh, a pitcher has to throw at least 138 innings. I think that may have kept Ranger Suarez from from winning it this year, but they have certain ramifications. But when you get into the science that they're using, 25% now is is contributed by Sabre, uh, baseball research. And I listened to the guy at the Gold Glove Awards talk about how uh, they measure velocity on the infielders. You know, so they're immediately gave me an opportunity to poke a hole in it because I'm saying, what if Nolan Arenado, uh, 200 of the ground balls that were hit to him were pretty normal throws from third to first. You didn't have to throw him max effort. Well, does that show in his arm speed that he's not throwing the ball as well as he did in past years? He didn't have to throw it that well. Right. Uh, you know, if you measured Greg Nettles, great third baseman for the Yankees, he just had that sort of three-quarter where he looped it over there, but he always got it there a step ahead. But now they're measuring all that, you know, how you how you get off the mound. I would have loved that because I, I took a lot of pride in getting off the mound in a hurry to field bunts. I think the best compliment uh, I got in that regard was when Louis Aparicio was a Hall of Famer and was a speedster. He From Venezuela, he told my teammate Cesar Tovar that I was the only pitcher he did bunt on. Uh, so I, I, we always in practice took a lot of pride in getting off the mound and getting to that bunt or slow roller as quickly as possible. So they, there's a lot of factors that they measure, and I wouldn't want to disrespect any of the gold glovers that won the awards, but I'm trying to figure out how Nolan Arenado, for example, who was the gold standard third baseman, all of a sudden did not even qualify for the three uh, nominations. And, and that's probably because of the input from the analytics. So it would take some time to sit down with somebody and, and figure out why things like that happen. But it is, uh, again, an indication of how uh, science is affecting uh, a lot of the ways in which we uh, value players and give out awards. Yeah, and the, the awards are important, but people forget this is, this is the, these guys' livelihood and how they're being judged it's changing, but the part I, I get, I think should be scary for all of them. It's, it's opaque. Like we, we, we can't put a finger on the exact formula that it takes to win that 25%. I mean, they, they said arm speed, like to me, that's, excuse my language again, I'm using two bad words in the same show, but that's asinine to say that how hard you throw the ball over. Um, what if a guy just doesn't have a strong arm? Um, I mean, that's, he's, he's going to max out at whatever, well, in a case where pitchers, and I, I did this, if I were to break off the mound to first base and field a ground ball, you usually take three or four little steps and toss it underhand to the first. <laughs> so there's just so many factors in there that I don't know how science can accurately uh, 
how they can actually judge one player against another player. Because the, the basic uh, uh, thing you want to do as a fielder is get to the ball, get the ball to the first baseman before, before the runner gets there. And, yeah. and I don't care if, if you have to throw it at 80% or 100%, that's the only thing you have to do. Shoot, kick it over for all I care. Just get yeah. it. What, so did they did they give any other indicators besides the velocity of the arm? I mean, I see these metrics on TV where they'll they'll as soon as the ball's hit, they'll put a timer on the guy to, to say how many you know feet per second he covers uh, in the outfield for for instance. Yeah, they've got that. Uh, they've got you know the average defensive runs saved. Uh, they've got a lot of little metrics and and code. Uh, you know, three number, three digit. Uh, codes for that and I it would take me a while to really understand it but I I tend to chuckle at it because I just don't understand how they can be that accurate with it they do factor in for pitchers uh hold how he holds runners uh and again uh, I mean I the only experience I have is to go to go on my own and I could when Johnny Sane helped me develop the slide step I think I was the first pitcher to use it back in the 70s I could get the ball from movement to mitt. In other words, from the from the time my pitching arm moved till the time it hit the catcher's mitt, I could get it occasionally in less than a second. Oh wow! But sometimes one point one. So I had very few runners try to steal off me. Uh, so you know that that kind of thing they're factoring into it. But now you have this rule that you can only throw over there twice. Um, so, you know, all those in a, in a pitcher's motion is going to factor into that. Your power pitchers tend to take a higher leg kick, take a little longer to get the ball to home plate. So runners get a better jump by the same token, the ball gets to home plate a little sooner. So is that a big factor? I don't know. Uh, that's, you know, most of the stolen bases are stolen off the pitcher, not the catcher. Catchers get blamed for it. They'll say, well, you know, he's only, uh, uh, they've they've stolen uh, eight out of ten against him. Well, chances are the eight they stole is because the pitcher didn't get the ball to him quickly enough. Yeah, and, and to do it under a second is ridiculous. What the just for the audience, the, the normal time that people will try to gauge one point two is pretty much what their their, their goal yeah, is. Right? I think if you go one point three, but what Johnny did with me, if you were standing straight up. And I was looking at first base because I'm a left-hand pitcher. What's the first move I would make? It would be back into my left leg to kind of load up. So what I did is I sat on my back leg with my hands over on my left side. So I was already preloaded. And then I would just take the ball out of the glove, step toward home, and let it go. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Rick Russell came over one day from, uh, from the Cubs. And we worked on it a little bit. And Larry McWilliams, there are some some pitchers that do a good job of it, but but mainly uh, when I see them use the slide step, they're they're not doing it correctly at all because they're standing straight up, and they're in a hurry to deliver the ball to home. So their body goes forward, and I would say ninety percent of the time the ball goes high and away. And I could teach them very quickly to sit on that back leg. And then just explode toward home, and they would have much better command of the pitch, and they would also get it to home plate sooner. Yeah, no, I, I I would love to see the the saber people go back in time, 
and relook the their the, the award winners and see how different the the award winners would be and that may show them another one of those aha moments like we talked about with Bellinger they're like well this doesn't make sense yeah. uh, how is you know how's Jim Cott no longer the the best fielding pitcher we saw it with our eyes how's Greg Maddox no longer Ozzy Smith for instance yeah. um but I just pulled up the uh they have they have two criteria the batted ball location which the, to me, it's sometimes reading scouting reports and things like this is like reading a medical report. But uh, defensive runs saved, you mentioned. Um, ultimate zone rating. Um, yeah. uh, runs effectively defended. Um, and it's two measures are defensive reg- regression analysis and total zone rating. Yeah. So um, car- carve that one, that, that stuff up. Jeez. Well, it's, it's created a lot of jobs for people. You know I mean, That's I right. did say, I did say when, and, and I was first on the agenda because, uh, the pitchers, so I give out the pitchers, uh, uh, awards and, uh, uh, Zach Wheeler couldn't be there. So Johnny Franco, uh, accepted the award for him in the, uh, in the national league and Jose Barrios, who was, uh, got to know real well when he was with the twins, he won it for the American league, but, I had said if they saw highlights of me compared to the guys today, they think we were playing in slow motion. <laughs> the guys are so, I mean, the, the, the replays they showed with some of the shortstops and, and the fielders in general, Tatis out in right field who got the uh, platinum award. Yeah, he won the whole thing. Yeah, and then Jimenez in the, in the American League, but they're just so much quicker and uh, athletic than we were years ago, so... Uh, you know, if I took my same skill set into today's game, uh, I'd probably get lost in the shuffle. Well, kind of like we said, the, the, the human body and the human mind is it's so adaptable. And I'd have to gather you, you, would, you would have adapted. You would have you sped up because kind of like we talk about with the smaller ball, you built yourself the right way. And when you are precise with that, the speed just comes naturally. I think with people you, you would adjust so. I, uh, I'm going to disagree with you on that. I don't disagree much, but I think you'd be fine. Yeah, I think the same is true of, uh, you know, if you took today's players and backed them into our era, they, they wouldn't be as big and fast and strong and into weight training, but athletically they would learn to perform because they were gifted with, uh, with a lot of athletic ability. So that's why when you start talking about who's the greatest ever, uh, you can only do it by eras. You know, uh, played it when you looked at Ruth and Gehrig and guys like that in the 20s. And then you look ahead to this era with the with Tatis out in right field and with the athleticism that uh, that players have. It's, it's just totally different. Yeah, and he's a converted shortstop. I'm sure our audience knows that. But yeah. that was my and in fact, Tanner broke that news to me with Tatis. And I was surprised and I don't know why. I mean, uh, and not to take away from him winning the award, but um, right fielder. You know, not seen as the. I guess in the outfield, you get those those throws from right to third that that get it. But were you surprised that a right fielder won the award? Well, you know, uh, and a right fielder, one of the one of the adjustments they have to make, uh, and I saw this happen to Lonnie Smith. Lonnie Smith, who played for three different World Championship teams with the with the Phillies, and then with us with the Cardinals in '82, and then the Royals, and he was never known as an outstanding fielder. He was a center fielder in, in the minor leagues. And on opening day in 76, because John Candelaria was pitching, uh, left-hander of the Pirates, 
our manager decided to play Lonnie in right field. And he messed up three fly balls. And everybody was saying, well, how's that happened? Well, as you know from playing the game, when a right-hand hitter hits the ball to right field, it has a reverse spin on it and it slices away from him. Yeah. And if you haven't played right field, then you you read the ball like a center fielder. It's totally different. And if our manager, from not having played out there, uh, he didn't realize it. We felt bad for Lonnie. So to to make that adjustment like a Tatis, uh, you know, that was something I'm sure that that he had good coaches or had to learn to do because the flight of the ball to the opposite field is completely different than when you're a center fielder and it's coming straight at you. Yeah, and I was kind of glad to see him get that exclamation point too. He's had a tough go of things early in his career. He's he's exploded onto the scene, then he had the where he was dismissed for a little while, and then yeah. he's been changed. And rumor has it Manny Machado has been pretty hard on him uh, to get his stuff together, and it sounds like it's moving in the right direction. So, um, but yeah, right fielder, I was surprised. I thought they're traditional; they'd give it to a shortstop or a center fielder. Yeah, that usually has has been it. Well, Kiermaier got it one year. He's been an outstanding center fielder. Byron Buxton with the Twins got the platinum one year. I think Machado did. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's there are just so many great athletic players out there in all positions today. You know, before we're done, I want to make sure I give a shout-out to, uh, to the McCoy brothers and the McCoy family. Uh, up there in Little Vermont, Burr and Burton Academy, which is located in Manchester Center, where I live in the summer and the fall, uh, they won the state championship this year in football. And their quarterback was Jack McCoy. Well, I go back to when his older brother, Jay, and all three of the McCoy brothers caddied for me at one time or another. Their coach is their dad, Tom, who's a retired state policeman. And both Jay and Joey went on. I think Joey's still there at Hobart. Jay went to Hobart, good football player, now pre-med. And now here comes Jack, the youngest and maybe the most talented. So when you look at Tom and Beth McCoy to have raised three boys of high character and all just outstanding athletes, uh, student athletes, uh, really, really stands out. We, we read so much about the negative behavior of athletes on the professional level particularly so it's pretty refreshing to uh, to read about this family and the three brothers who have all uh, you know they're they're so well respected for, for in vermont for not only how they played for how they behave yeah that's always good to hear we, yeah you're right we hear the negative hits the the scene so quickly that the positive is almost boring but we need more of that because it's out there we just need to make that important and is the youngest one jack you said Jack is, uh, he's a senior now. I think he'll go on. Um, now he may go on to a different school cause he plays hockey also, but, uh, Jay and, and, uh, Joey both went to Hobart, which is a college up in Geneva, New York. Yeah. Division three school up there. In yeah. The- and, uh, played some football and then Jay has moved on to, uh, to pre-med, but, uh, yeah, they're, uh, they're quite the athletic family and well-known there in Southern Vermont. Now was Tom a, a good athlete? I'm assuming so. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I know he, uh, when I first met him, I had invited Bill Parcells over, Coach Parcells, to play golf. And I said, I've got these two brothers that are caddying today, Jay and Joey. And as the round went on, Tom joined us too to play golf. And as the round went on, Coach was showing Jay and Joey 
some of the exercises that Lawrence Taylor used <laughs> as a linebacker because Jay was a linebacker. So they were getting they were getting uh, coaching from one of the all time great coaches while they were caddying for us. But I don't know what kind of an athlete Tom was, but uh, uh, he's certainly done a great job coaching. Yeah. And certainly it sounds like he's done a great job as a father. As yeah. Well raising these boys. So all three, all three boys were not quarterbacks then just the, the, uh, I think they all were. They all were. Yeah. Jay was one of these all around. He was a pitcher on the baseball team. They were, you know, kids that played multiple sports. I think Jack, Jack or Joey, they played hockey as well as, uh, as well as football and baseball. Oh, nice. When you're in a small school like that, you're you're more apt to find young athletes that are playing multiple sports because they they got to have more guys to fill up the teams. Yep, and they can't overlap the sports. That's the trick to to a certain degree. Where that's the point we're at now, where people will say, "Yeah, my my son or daughter's playing softball or baseball, playing basketball, playing flag football," but it's all in the same three months, and that doesn't count. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> that's further abuse. So the McCoy the McCoy family, we want to celebrate them up in Vermont and. Yeah. I appreciate what, what dad has done up there with raising three good young yeah, men. Their mother, their mother, Beth, you know, great parents. Beth, that's right. I mean, to exclude Beth. I'm sorry about that. Um, but Beth, too. And they couldn't get better coaching out there in football than Coach Parcells. That's, he's my all-time favorite. Yeah, yeah. Coach, is, coach is something special. Yep. Him and uh, him and Bobby Knight uh, united up there at West Point for a little while. Yes, they did. Yep. Yeah. So, well, good. That was a great show today, Jim. Thanks for the input on the Golden Glove Awards. I'm, I'm going to say, I think you are, I, the numbers still confuse me. I'm going to have to look deeper into how that's decided. It, uh, yeah, it's, it's puzzling. It's a, it's a head scratcher, but, but uh, what's, what's an in, it's indicative of how science has invaded, and maybe it is for a good thing, is you have more newer Gold Glove winners every year. I think there were 13 first-timers this year or something, a couple of rookies, full pay for one from the uh, Yankees. That's never happened. But, uh, you know, years ago, like I, I know when I first got the award, I'm sure in 62, it was because I was 6'5", 240, but I had some quickness. Uh, I got hit in the mouth with a ground ball, and then the next game I field a couple, and it kind of drew attention to me. And I'm sure that it was very easy for them to just continue to give me the award because I logged a lot of innings, but now they're looking much deeper into it. So part of that can be good, but part of it could be deceptive also, which is why, again, it goes back to our point that we talk about is you need to have a blend of baseball experience and, uh, and some of the analytics that can be useful. Yeah. And those are the conversations that I think will help bring the game back together again and but uh, for now I'm, I'm going to take my own advice because when I started reading the numbers and listening to it I was like boy that doesn't make sense so I, I gave that advice to the science guys before the show I'm going to take it myself and I'm going to look into the numbers this week and try to make it make sense to me and see if I can't report back to you at least privately on what I found out but oh, uh, yeah, great show today uh, we're going to be off next week unless you want to hop on but if I don't talk to you um, you and your family have a happy Thanksgiving and you as well, and we'll uh, we'll continue again after uh, the Thanksgiving holiday. Sounds good. Well, great show. And this is Cots Corner on Real Voices of the Game, episode three fifty three. Thanks to our audience, sixty thousand closing in on sixty thousand. I should say. I don't want to jinx us here. Appreciate your support. Five stars and some great comments, so we can battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in MLB. 
And thank you to Blackout Coffee. Be awake, not woke. I'm drinking my espresso. I probably shouldn't drink it after noon, but I am today. It's going to keep me hopped up through our third interview. We have Casey McKeon later on today, Jack McKeon's son, a scout with the Nationals. So it's going to be a great interview to follow up our triple header Wednesday here. But uh, with that, thanks so much again, Jim. We appreciate you. All right, and say hi to Casey because he and his dad uh, had them both at my induction two years ago. I'm going to bring up that story with Jack that you had back when you first oh, yeah. baseball. Yeah, See if, if he hadn't told him the story, I'm going to tell it today. Good.